Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier, and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law. Welcome, dear listener. And I'm reliably informed that this is podcast number 19 in our series of Unpacking Contract Law. And I am joined as ever, in fact, Physically, we are, for once, in the same room. But I am joined physically (laughs) and spiritually and emotionally, I hope, by the lovely Professor Sontier. Now, I've mangled the French. And uh, the equally lovely uh, Dr. Tim Dodsmith. And yours truly, Maggie Hemsworth. And here we are, number 19. We're going to discuss an international case of sovereign debt interest, so we're really uh, reaching way above our normal punching weight, as it were. We're going to look at the case of Palladian, if I'm saying them right, and the Republic of Argentina, so hence the international aspect. And this is a case about sovereign debt finance. And so this is the Republic of Argentina borrowing and, uh, and arrangements, a sophisticated arrangement whereby uh, they were supposed to be repaying this debt over a lengthy period of time. And you might say to yourself, well, why on earth are we discussing this? Uh, because normally we're into contract law. And yes, it is contract law because there was a sophisticated contractual arrangement that set out the terms and obligations of the, the lenders, Palladian, and the Republic of Argentina, the borrower. So very quickly, some of the background before I throw it open to uh, my colleagues to uh, regale us with their views about this. This is sovereign debt restructuring. And the background, I suppose, is quite important, or certainly interesting. It's the national financial crisis that the Republic of Argentina found themselves in way back in 2001. So sovereign debt default was then apparently the largest then known in history of 80 billion US dollars, which is a mind boggling figure. Inflation was running at 40 percent. So if we think we're suffering currently in the UK with inflation, think about inflation at 40 percent and 50 percent of the population were below the poverty line and the debt GDP ratio. uh, I've just quickly explained that, but those uh, like me with limited economics, uh, GDP is gross domestic product, uh, a way of calculating the value of all the economic activity in the country at at, uh, at any given time. And the ratio between the debt and the GDP for that year was 130%. In other words, the state owed considerably more than the amount that they were producing in any given year. Hence the desperate need, I suppose, for refinance on on a sovereign uh, basis, that is the entire country. So the dispute, coming to the contractual part of the dispute, the dispute centres around a relatively narrow part of a contractual document, which is talking about 
the way in which um, a table uh, setting out the figures for GDP uh, was to be recalculated uh, because of a change in the way in which GDP was being calculated in the state from time to time. Now, the problem comes with any contractual document that is designed to span a long period of time. I think this is another classic instance of that because we have a possible span from 2005 right up to 2034. And so uh, the document has a table, a, a chart or a method of calculating and recalculating uh, gross domestic product figures. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, why are we interested in any of this? And we're interested in this because Argentina's obligations to repay the lenders uh, would only be triggered on three conditions and they had to all be in place. The first one was the actual GDP for each reference year. That's linked to the table of years from 2005 to 2034. Uh, was greater than the base case GDP for the reference year. Uh, and that's the heart of this dispute, I think. The second uh, condition was the actual real GDP growth was greater uh, than uh, the base year. So that's a percentage change requirement, I suppose. And the third one was the aggregate's total amount of payments wouldn't exceed some uh, particular payment cap. So there's three linked conditions. And I think the uh, when I re read the case, I, I think that the center of this is about that first condition as to whether uh, the GDP for a particular repayment year had met or exceeded the figures in the chart. Now, the problem comes when you have a mechanism in the contract for rescaling, as it's called, or recalculating the chart. And that became necessary because the Republic of Argentina changed their, what they called the base GDP reference year, the base year. When they started the agreement, the base year, I think, was 1993. And they changed their reference GDP base year to 2004. So that all parties were agreed that that in itself, that change would have necessitated an upscaling or recalculation, if you like, of the chart. So the dispute is as to how the method of recalculation and what that is doing to the figures on the chart, because we're all agreed that the repayment is not triggered until the GDP in any particular year in the Republic of Argentina has exceeded a figure for that particular year on that wretched chart. So once we start fiddling around, tinkering with the chart, it then becomes a problem, or at least there is the room for argument, as we have here, as to what's the correct method of recalculation. And I suppose that is the essence of it. The lender was saying, really, this is simple. You look at the wording on the, the, the document and it's talking about, in essence, there's an adjustment and you need to have a formula and you are uh, using the base year 1993 as the denominator 
on that fraction, as it were, those of uh, us who are uh, mathematically challenged, probably, uh, we, 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 we've already lost this. Okay, but the, the denominator figure is the 1993 base figure. And the argument is, okay, what is the numerator? What is the figure that goes on the top part of the fraction, as it were? The lender is saying, it is simple. If you read the language of the document itself, it is purely, simply uh, the 2004 new base year figure. So in a sense, the fraction therefore looks like 2004 GDP over 1993 GDP. And so every figure on the chart has to be recalculated mathematically by multiplying the figure on the chart originally by this fraction. Argentina says, oh, yes, well, we agree that it has to be rescaling and we agree that it's a mathematical exercise involving a fraction, but you've got the numerator wrong. The denominator, that's the figure underneath, as it were, is the 1993 GDP figure. We're, we're agreed about that. But the numerator, the top figure, is 2012. And you might say to yourself, where has 2012 come from as a figure? And the answer that Argentina had to this was, well, 2012 was the last year in which the Republic used the 19, uh, 1993 figures. So they were talking about the uh, 2012 as the overlap year from changing using a base figure of built on 1993 years to one on 2004 years. Now, you can maybe stop and think, if you look at those fractions, where the motivation is coming from for that reasoning. Because if one assumes that uh, gross domestic product, that is the economic activity in any state, in any particular year, if we assume that that is going to grow naturally over time, you would expect, therefore, that the figure, if you like, in 2012 will be quite a bit more than the figure in 2004. How much more? Who knows? But just naturally incremental growth, if you say for sake of argument, perhaps 1993 is base year, call it one, 2004 might be two. And so we can imagine in our mind's eye a fraction that looks like two over one, in other words, multiplying the figures by doubling them on the, on the chart for the 2004 over 1993 fraction. But on Argentina's case, if we're using 2012 as the numerator, we would expect maybe that to be three or four over one, the base year 1993. And so you can see, therefore, that on Argentina's case, that chart, when it's rescaled, the figures are going to be quite a bit higher than the figures on the lender's calculation. So that's the sort of, I think, the simple idiot maths behind this as to the motivation. So the argument is really whether the contract has the natural meaning that the lender is putting forward, or does it have the meaning which Argentina is putting forward? And that's where we get finally to the bit of contract law. So my friends here are not dead. They are still with me breathing and listening. So now it is your opportunity. Severine, Tim, 
What do you think about the law? We finally got to some law. And, and I think that's a key point. So if, if you are interested in this, in, in more of the international finance part of this, you can pop across to our colleagues uh, who have a podcast called Clauses and Controversies that we are on as well. We'll pop the link into the description of this uh, if you'd like to find out more about the international finance side. But uh, we're just going to focus on the contract side. Just. But it's American colleagues. It is American colleagues, yes. yes. So they know a lot about finance, finance. but yeah. perhaps not so much about English law. Is that what we're... Yeah. English contract law and vice versa for us. So what do you think about the English contract law fighting to get out of the mathematical calculations? (laughs) Well, first of all, Maggie, I would like to say, you know, it would have been so much easier had I spoken to you reading this. Dear listener, I love your expression, Maggie. This is a 300 paragraph long judgment by Mr. Justice Picken. And he did say right at the beginning that he was going to be brief. So, God forbid, if he had not uh, said he was going to be brief. So, thank you, Maggie. This is, is there anything you cannot do, Maggie? This was understood in so much easier than uh, I understood it when I was uh, trying to read this. So, now that I've taken the mic, I better say something. <laughs> so, it's... They are, say, a non-controversial case on the law? Uh, no new law, mm. I would say. Would you say this? Yeah, no, no new law. No, no law. But uh, a, a way of seeing an illustration of the way in which English contract law wrestles with these sorts of problems. Yes, but also I think what is interesting is to see the relevance of English contract law because of course this was not you know the reason why English law was relevant is because there was a jurisdiction uh, clause saying that you know the contract even though entered by American uh, hedge fund companies and the Republic of Argentina it was subject to uh, English law so again uh, the relevance of English law but So that's telling you something about the international reach of English law. I know, of English contract law for sure, yes. Why did they choose English law? Why didn't they choose the law of New York? Ah, that is not explained. I suppose because English law is seen as, you know, certain, predictable, logical and respecting of parties' autonomy and certainty of contract. I think one of the key parts that Argentina was quite quite clear to put forward in their case was, was how they were trying to attract investors by saying this was stable, this was a solid calculation, they were not going to go back on their promises. And I think therefore picking an established mm. jurisdiction is yeah. probably part of a way of enforcing that thinking or enforcing that message that they're trying to get across. Yes. Um, so that might be that might be part of, of it. What I found interesting, I think, was how much the judge opened up this idea of interpretation and going through various judgments in order to align them with with the judgment. So uh, with this, so one is, where does the factual matrix come in? At what point are we talking about ambiguity Mm -hmm. as well? And I think, Maggie, I think we had a brief conversation about this earlier on. Where does the idea of ambiguity come in? Does that come 
out of the factual matrix, or are we applying? Are we checking first whether there's any ambiguity, and then checking within the factual matrix? I don't think I'd go as far as to talk about ambiguity. You don't need ambiguity to have right. Well, I suppose I'm arguing with myself now. Uh, rival interpretations. Does that mean the wording is ambiguous? I suppose I must mean that. Well, we have that from Rainy Sky, don't yes. we? Where they start talking about ambiguity. Yeah. And the idea of where they've used unambiguous language, the court shouldn't start interfering. No. So I, I guess I mean, the flip side of that is where they have used ambiguous language, well, then the court can start interfering. But does that ambiguous language come from purely the text or does that no. come from the factual? No, matrix? there's a sort of what I would call patent ambiguity. In other words, on the face of the document, just reading it itself as a matter of the English language, it is ambiguous. That's what I thought that you were talking about. But there's also latent ambiguity. Mm -hmm. So the factual background might assist a party argue to the court that actually uh, when you read it, it makes literal sense. But when you take on board the factual matrix and the background, uh, it's not that it doesn't make sense, but it opens up the possibility of there being a rival interpretation. And I think that is what I quite liked, actually. Uh, so as it happens, my eyes you know, fall on the relevant paragraph, which is a miracle. Because, Tim, when you asked the question, I thought, oh, they did actually reach they did raise that question so i'm going to quote at paragraph 137 that the ambiguity is not confined to linguistic ambiguity no. and he said so even when even where there is no strict linguistic ambiguity which yes. is the case here the yes. contract was not ambiguous but where the disagreement come in is and he says, where the meaning of the provision is nonetheless open to question. Yeah. So therefore, that is an interesting point. Which is a more elegant way of describing what I think I was trying to say. Yes. That is uh, patent ambiguity. Yeah. Reading yeah. the English language, the sentence yeah. it is not clear as yeah. to two or possibly more meanings. Yeah. Or latent ambiguity it's yeah. only when you stop and look at the background that you stop and yeah. think hang on maybe there is another yeah. way of seeing it yeah. and i think the strongest point i don't know what you think about this but i thought the strongest line that argentina's uh, council had on this was the background showed that when they were devising this wretched chart everyone was working on the predicted growth for GDP of 3%. And mathematically, that chart does show that. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that would assist their argument, trying to uh, give life or meaning to this upscaling formula expressed linguistically, that really what they were all trying to achieve was uh, an upscaling of the figures as base years were being changed but to preserve this idea of 3% projected growth. And I think that's probably their strongest argument. I think where the, for me, what is interesting is the fact that the consequences of the two possible interpretations had to be 
So I, I guess that's why the decision is so lengthy, because what Mr. Justice Picken does is really to try to do what he refers to or what has been referred before as the iterative process. So if we have one possible interpretation, we need to test that interpretation on the commercial side, on the commercial consequences. So that's why the decision is so lengthy. But usually we oh, see... Also the risk of appeal. Given the, the stakes are so okay. high yes. financially, yes. Uh, that must mean that there is an increasing likelihood of an appeal. Yeah. And therefore, any first instance judge has to really go through it with a fine tooth comb yes, right. um, because of the prospects of the Court of Appeal yes. going through it also and with a fine tooth comb. Yes, and yeah. we don't know yet whether that's... No, so this might be this appealed. Might, yeah, uh, and be. any first instance judge, I think, would have that in the back of his or her mind. But also, Am I going to be appealed? Yeah. And I think that comes through. The yes. amount of times when he says, just to be just, clear, yes. um, yes. it, it is clearly aimed at yeah. knowing that he's going to go to the next stage. Yeah. But also, and this is the interesting part for me, so this is not a normal commercial contract between two commercial parties. This is a contract between a sovereign state and a hedge fund. And perhaps one thing that is also therefore important to say, and that Mr. Justice Pickham said at the beginning, that the disagreement was not done, so the dispute did was not created because effectively Argentina was trying to get out of repaying the debt. So Maggie, you did uh, make that clear that it's in uh, uh, the Republic of Argentina, it was in their interest to repay because the repayment was could had to be done based on the sustainability as well as the ability. It is in both party's interest that this is repaid because that means the Republic of Argentina. But also it's it's in the, it's in any in, uh, sovereign state's interest to show that any non-payment yes. is fully lawful yes. and legitimate, as it were, so in a contractual law setting is correct yes. contractually. Yes. Otherwise, who is going to lend to them ever again? Exactly. But therefore, so for me, that was the interesting part to see the impact of a contract in a you know, much wider context and therefore the importance of drafting, but also the importance of putting the contract in its setting, hence the importance of the iterative process as, you know, Mr. Justice Picken puts it. So for me, that is the interesting, that is an interesting point of the decision because we can see the huge importance and in spite of careful drafting, that those two possible interpretations were valid. So, well, I think so. There's there's one interest. So the the point Lord Clark brings up from Rainy Sky is that he says, "Well, we need this is one unitary exercise." Yes. And then he goes on later on, if I remember correctly, to split it into two parts. The first being, well, either there is no ambiguity, and therefore we're just giving it its plain meaning, and that that's it, or there is ambiguity. And, and we don't look at how unreasonable the result might be. And the second is to say, well, or there is ambiguity and there's two different meanings, and we're then going to look at which is the most commercially sensible. 
Yeah. Now, the question I may come up with that is, well, are we looking at the end result under the circumstances or are we looking at the commercial at the time the contract was made? Presumably, it's, it's the reading at the time the contract was made, even yes. if the end result then is going to be unreasonable under the circumstances that the unreasonableness is probably too low a hurdle. It has to be something that looks well, nonsense. Right? Well, the other one, because we've got two readings of the same clause, and we're saying which one is 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 more likely, or, or in that case, I'm not sure they put it the quite like that. I think they're putting if one of the two interpretations has no commercial sense then that must be discarded. So it's not that they are both reasonable and one is more reasonable than the other. It is uh, more that one of them is uh, wholly nonsensical or lacking in commercial sense. So that's quite a high threshold. Do you see what I'm saying here? Yes, but that, that's assuming that one is over the So I'm, I'm sure I know where... Yeah, so Lord Clark actually says, here we are, the court must give effect to that reading, um, yes. however some surprising or unreasonable the result might be. So that's yes. if there's only one reading. Okay. But if there are two possible constructions, the court is entitled to reject the one which is unreasonable, and in a commercial context, the one which flouts business concepts. Yes, okay, so he qualifies this idea of reasonable, unreasonable, something that, that flouts yes. business commercial sense. That's sort of underlining that actually but that's... still in comparison to the other reading, yes, right? But so they're always in the comparative Okay, exercise. that's for sure. But the one that flouts business commercial sense, that that's stating it quite firmly, quite, yeah, quite a yeah. strong sort of test in a sense. Well, that's but that's still the, not the outcome. That is still the clause as it was written at the time the contract was made. Yes, well, when you talk about outcome, you, you have to look at the business consequences in order to judge whether one flouts business common sense. So it's not possible to understand the meaning of wording in a written contract without some regard to the consequences. But I suppose it's the difference between uh, that as we're talking about it and unintended consequences. So if you, you, you know, a lack of judgment, you agree to something that in retrospect was daft or you agree to something that actually wasn't in your best interest. I think the Supreme Court again and again are saying, uh, so be it, tough luck in a sense because of this freedom of contract. We Absolutely. don't rewrite contracts for parties. Yes, there is a quote and I, and, I, and I can't find it, but it is the difference between something that is daft or yes. that is commercially not very advisable and irrational. Yes. So I think that's where the uh, the, the court uh, draws the line. So so I think you two agree. Say yeah. that. <laughs> and that is then the end of this podcast. We have nothing more to say. <laughs> She's come here to insert us. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say, hey, that's... I, I think I have what Talk you're about talking about, Severine. Somewhere in the judgment, they refer to a case called Sugarman yes. and CJ Investments. Yes. And the judge there is saying there is a fine line between something which is commercially unattractive or unreasonable yes. and one that is nonsensical oh. or irrational. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. And it's the latter 
where the court is going to say, hang on, because yeah. this is irrational and nonsensical, yeah. you yeah. cannot have yeah. meant this. Yeah. Or even on an objective judgment, not asking you personally what you thought you were doing, standing back and we assume that yeah. parties are rational, yeah. even if they're stupid, yeah. that th there, is, there is the sort of cutting line, as it were. Yeah. So I have just a you know, pedantic argument about, is it, merely something that's unreasonable and I think that Sugarman yes. case is sort of indicating actually there is this fine line yes. and unreasonable on yes. its own won't cut it I think. Yes because what is interesting is therefore the balance so Tim I think maybe what you were driving at is that you know so yes of course the difficulty of the task of the court is that and again uh, Mr Justice Picken makes the point so we we have to look at they have to look at it at the time the contract is made. Yes. And so hindsight cannot be used. But of course, yes. and that's why I think you two agree that ultimately, in order to see which interpretation is rational and makes commercial sense, they need to test the court needs to test what this interpretation will mean, of course, in the future. So that's the fine line between interpreting the, the, what the parties meant at the time the contract was made, but of course looking at it in the wider context of, okay, but what it means in terms of consequences. But I'm not sure in this particular case whether that argument was really centre stage because either of the interpretations were to use your language entirely reasonable there weren't you know the republic's case was not irrational no, no, in terms of its consequence be. neither was the lender's case irrational in terms of consequence okay so what i mean was center stage was the fine balance of actually testing whether which of the two was the most made the most commercial sense. Yes, I agree with you, and that's why I said what I said earlier, that Argentina was not trying to pull one of the, the, the lenders, but there were serious consequences, serious different consequences as to... No, all I'm saying is that question as to if there are two rival interpretations, the question, is one of them nonsensical and irrational, that question in this particular setting, I don't think, was of any help at all because both interpretations were, were not unreasonable, yeah. were not irrational. So yeah. that actually didn't get the judge anywhere in terms of an end result. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So the question that he was then raising was which of these rival interpretations is closer to the text? Yeah, yeah. So it was much more about, at the end of the day, it was much more about, is this a question of draftsman's blunder, error, and that the parties objectively, on an objective understanding of their intentions, did intend the Republic's uh, calculation to be that that they had agreed. And uh, by uh, error, if you like, in formulating a formula verbally, it had got mangled. And that's the sort of Chartbrook 
principle that yes. sometimes people talk about chart book principle, which is sort of like correcting draftsman's mangling, not change the meaning, but to um, give sense to the meaning that has been expressed badly, as it yes. were. But mostly, I don't know what you, what you think about that. Most of the cases that I can think of that talk about chart book are sort of syntax or the bracket in the wrong place. Mm. So investors' compensation, West Bromwich Building Society, the bracket was probably in the wrong place. Mm. Yes. Lord Hoffman would say, obviously, yes. in the wrong place. Yes. Um, Chartbrook itself resembles this one to my idiot's yes. eye yeah. because it is a, it's a formula which is essentially yeah. mathematical, yeah. which the parties have expressed verbally. Now, I don't know about you, but I always think there is the seeds of some risk and a problem with that because you're taking something which perhaps is more accurately expressed mathematically with figures and formula and whatever mathematicians use, and you're trying to cast that using words. And maybe there is more room for error. Maybe also the legal legal draftsman people. Oh, you threw me a bone there, didn't you? I'm going to have to take that. So who knows all about... Yeah, this is not going to work this time. But anyway, we are very grateful to Newcastle Law School. And they are now offering a brand new LLM in emerging technologies and the law. Find out how law, economics, politics and society intersect in a digital world by visiting ncl.ac.uk to find out more. Thank you, Newcastle Law School, for sponsoring Unpacking Contract Law. Thank, Thank you, Severine, for throwing me the bone. I didn't being do too it. slow. Is it, is I didn't it? actually do it for that reason, but it does raise issue that, you know... Well, that tell be... the Newcastle people, if they could work in a bit of maths yes. for lawyers, yeah. they, yeah, would, would be... they would be doing a service, because yes. I don't know what you think, but, you know, I, I, when I tend to see cases that are mathematical mm -hmm. and have a formula expressed verbally... I think, oh, crikey, if a lawyer's had anything to do with this, this could go badly. <laughs> and Or, alternatively, I don't know what you think about, say, um, Chartbrook itself, Chartbrook Persimmon Homes. It looked to me as if the client had devised the formula and negotiated it with their opposite number, as it were, Chartbrook. So Persimmon, the house builder there, had devised the formula because they were the ones paying and they were kind of like calling the shots, I think, uh, and then presented it to the landowner, Chartbrook, and uh, maybe there was discussion about what it meant. Who, who knows? I don't really know. But then it was presented to the lawyers who just sort of took it and ran with it, mm -hmm. as it were, and maybe one needs to stop and think about formula that are expressed verbally in a contract to, to stop and think, hang on, is, is that, does that mean what we think it means? Mm. Yes. Or could and we express that in a different way? Yeah, and maybe testing it. it iteration. The that would be it, we, go, we go back to it, yes. which I think is maths and or engineering. I'm sure I read that uh, lawyers have um, hijacked this word iterative process, but actually I think it comes from maths or engineering. Someone was going to have to check that out. Perhaps, dear listener, you've got a maths and yes. engineering background, you would know this, but I think it is about repeating experimental processes, as it were, in iteration is to repeat something.
Uh, and so lawyers have taken that word, having been led to do that by the Supreme Court, I think, in fairness, yes. uh, to now say that this is this testing of Severine's rival interpretations. I think you were talking about that, weren't you? Yes. If you do, dear listener, have any more information on that, do contact us on unpacking.contract.law at gmail.com. We're always interested in your thoughts. Has that got us any further, though, on... So we've, we've done the unreasonable, reasonable part. We've done ambiguity in, in the two senses, I think, that we've seen them. One being yes. ambiguity in the language, that the, the drafting blunder, the, the error, and the ambiguity in taking into account the factual matrix and that then gives us the ambiguity even though the language itself might not be ambiguous it's it's the context within which it is ambiguous the context in which it is applied that gives rise to the ambiguity well your under your understanding of the language having regard to the background then creates in your mind uncertainty and yeah. doubt as yeah. to what it means. Yeah. I suppose that's how I would yes. think of it. Well, that creates another possible plausible. Yes, which is why I had yeah. that phrase, latent mm-hmm. ambiguity. Okay. When yeah. you first yeah. read it, it yes. doesn't it look doesn't. ambiguous. But and when the, the more of the story you know, yeah. then the seeds of okay. doubt are then planted yeah. in your yeah. mind. I think I would yes. say Which arise not from the consequences, but also not from the document but from the factual matrix within which the whole thing happened yes that was not a very good way of saying it but yeah what is the factual matrix that we're then looking at because i could do i can imagine two at least two different factual matrixes matrices probably <laughs> yes two aspects of the factual matrix well is this uh, this projected three percent per annum growth i think that's the point i was trying to make yeah. that is actually supportive of the republic's argument because when you look at the chart actually it does match that idea so, the, the so you would assume, no. therefore, that any rescaling is going to stay true to that 3% projected, but yes. uh, maybe that's and not that what is, the end result was. And that is, therefore, so, you know, what Mr. Justice Pickham, you know, for him, there were three elements of what is factually um, relevant, and the third one being what you've just uh, referred to that the intention so this is a paragraph 154 and 155 for anyone who wants to go in and and have a look but the, the the third one which is the difficult one that it is the intention behind the securities was that payment would only be made when the argentine economy was growing at a sufficiently healthy rate and that they would not be made if the republic's economy was not growing yes. so that is the con Yes, but this idea of sufficiently healthy is inherently vague and imprecise. So we are stuck with the language which the parties have used. And as you said, Severine, this is an international thing between a a major sovereign state and lenders. This is not something that's been jotted down on the back of an envelope in the pub. Um, 
parties have expensive lawyers who have poured over yes. the language and that's going to make it even harder yeah. isn't it to stray away from the language yeah. and i personally i don't know what you think but i personally i think that's why the republic's case was a very hard one to make because it involves putting in a fair bit of language into the wording whereas the lender's case doesn't do that it stays much more faithful to the wording and uh, when you stop and think that contracts can be done orally can be done wholly in writing and can be a hybrid of oral and writing and that parties are very varied as to sophistication this one is at the extreme end of yeah. the sophistication yeah. isn't it it's a sovereign state uh uh, and large consider considerable borrowing you would expect that parties have given very careful attention to every single word and every grammatical uh, point as it were that is made in that document so that i think makes it much harder for someone to then argue well that's not what what was meant uh, it was really meaning we've got to change that number it's not 1993 it's 2012 here and so the judge is saying but 2012 where where has that come from there is no mention of it anywhere in the paperwork yes so i guess that is also what is therefore so interesting for me here is the fact that we are not dealing with so usually when we look at contract interpretation, it's either one party over the other and, and the court ten, tends to look at it in a very adversarial uh, position. But here it seems that maybe I am reading too much into it being a, you know, a good faith uh, advocate. French yes. lawyer, you're trying to well, say. Well, I was going to say, that took, that took you all, all of, what was it, 40 minutes to say good faith. So Ah, French. Do the French do things differently on this then, Severin? No, but the, the, on, on, on a serious point, the fact that the, um, the, the that this is not this is an unusual type of contract. That well, it's unusual to us, but is it so unusual? Maybe it's okay. not that unusual these days that uh, sovereign debt finances structures uh, using. Uh, English contract law and an, a contract drafted by English lawyers. Is that unusual these days? I don't know. You'd have to ask an international lawyer, possibly. How often are you is... scared to be in the same room? <laughs> <laughs> well, Newcastle Law School might have a view about that as part of their LLM. Absolutely, absolutely. Not something I can help with, but, but they would. Yeah, um, but for me, so maybe I haven't read enough uh, you know, cases on, on debt restructuring. Well, no, you're right. I think we don't see many reported, if that's what you're saying, Severine. That I, is what I, I am I'm saying. I'm being facetious. So I, I agree entirely. We don't... Drafting, right? They could be just brilliant at drafting. Or, cases, not an indication or, or indeed that the venue for disputes is a private one right. and arbitration, yeah. for example, and yes. we're just not seeing these yes. things. That's yes. all. doesn't mean they're not there, like an iceberg. Because yeah. these sums... These kind of sums, yes, oh, and, 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 and I'm assuming states need that kind. Of, they need to get money from somewhere. Well, clearly so that was. I, I think to me that was absolutely clear. You know, I mean, you know, our 
Argentina had defaulted, they therefore really, really needed that, that, that agreement. And so, of course, you know, the fact that they defaulted made them, you know, even more reliant on something. And therefore, you know, yeah, the, the four, but for me, the, um, the, the, that is an interesting con that is an interesting aspect of how the contract law as a tool can be used in such a wide uh, context and so yes yes maybe here i show my ignorance but i think you two have made a point that just because you know we don't see those things very often it doesn't so mean they're not there but yes it doesn't mean that, that that they're not there but for me what is uh, and I have found, you know, another um, paragraphs that I have uh, highlighted, and it's paragraph 202, that also, for me, the context and the careful consideration by the judge. I know what you both have said that, you know, it is it might be appealed, um, and so therefore he needs, Mr Justice Picken needs to consider all the avenues. But also, for me, the... Uh, interest that needs to be balanced and a paragraph 202 and it is the third one that is important for me in considering the economic position it is important to have in mind that what Ms. Prevazer Casey described as the balance of economic risks and reward between the Republic and the holders of the securities that is yeah but I'm not sure where does that where does that get you because that's stating the leading obvious isn't it given the structure of this that the debt was only going to be repaid, as you said, Severine, if the economy was of a sufficient state of I health. Know. There's the element of risk that yes. the lender is taking. They've tried to nail down the description of that trigger that point that by is, the language of this. Yeah, but for me that is important because it shows a different... Usually we portray, you know, contracting parties are portrayed as at each other's throat. And yet here, this is therefore... Well, only when there's a dispute. At the time of the contract, they are, to the extent that they have a shared goal in mind, that is the performance of the contract, it would not be correct to say they're in dispute. Surely they are. No, they have a common interest at that point. They generally portray contract law to be dealing with parties, you know, the, the process is adversarial. And the way well, only when we see it, because remember, we're seeing cases ergo, there's a dispute. But when a contract is formulated, there is no dispute, and the parties have. Uh, all right, they have their own separate interests, commercial and otherwise, which may very well be intention. I, I agree thus far, Severing. But to the extent that they have nailed down their rights and obligations in the contract, that in encapsulates their common interest, if you like. I know, but the common interest is not. So the fact that here the common interest is taken, it has to be taken into consideration. Uh, I obviously need to... Uh, go back and read a lot more interpretation. Uh, well, it's case, the it's the sort the, of background uh, when you when you look at this that the repayment it's the idea of not being a simple debt. I think that's what we have difficulty yeah. with because if I borrow money from you, Tim, you would expect to be repaid that same money regardless of my uh, economic output or. Uh, anything else going on in my life that's the sort of simple debt uh, credit arrangement between lender and borrower 
this is more sophisticated than that. Uh, so I suppose, Severin, if you're saying the risk is obviously much greater and enhanced in this sort of structure, then yes, I agree with you. I mean, a lender is always taking a risk that he'll he or she will see uh, nothing or only part of the repayment. But this one is risk writ large, as it were, yes. because of the way in which it's structured. But where can we? We can't really go anywhere with that. That's simply a recognition of that. And you would assume perhaps that the other terms in the bargain reflect that element of risk. For all we know, they're getting some extra out of this than a simple uh, simple interest being repaid, for example. It, 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 it assists the lender to lend on this basis. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done so. Do you see what I'm trying to say? There's sort of there's some commercial interest to them in taking this risk. Yes. So one assumes there are some advantages from that risk, yes. which would not otherwise be had. Yes. Is what I'm trying to say in a simple you borrowed money, you repay the same amount yes. sort of thing. It's enhanced in some aspect of the terms, which we've not really had to look at. But yes. one would assume, you know, you you talk talked about them being hedge funds you know that's not a charity no is it no, let's be frank not. so, so not. they are getting if you like their yeah. pound of flesh Absolutely. somewhere Absolutely. and they have taken a view as to the likelihood of getting this yeah. pound perhaps two pounds of flesh yes <laughs> or perhaps an arm and a leg yes um i mean it's worth noting i suppose argentina had actually paid 10 billion us dollars on this deal yes. mm-hmm before the dispute broke. Yeah, no, the, 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 uh, as you said at the beginning, the, uh, the sums are staggering. Yeah. I have one, one interesting point that I picked out that might be worth having a look at is where he draws a line between rectification and construction. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, here we're going back to the case, what was it, FSHC or whatever, mm-hmm. we've discussed here on the podcast yes, already. And where that line is drawn, at, at what point is the court actually still just construing? And at what point are we accepting there is simply a mistake? Yeah. And that mistake needs to be rectified. And actually, I can see his point here that the Republic's case was getting very close to really being a matter of mistake and rectification rather than construction. There was so much more that had just simply not been addressed at all in the document. That we were getting fairly close to the point really we should have gone down the mistake route and the argument should have been well we just made a mistake in our drafting this is not about construction anymore. but you've got two sort of arguments then they would have had to run it was either unilateral mistake yeah. in which case you are alleging that the lenders were aware that the republic had signed something in the mistaken belief it meant x when actually it meant why that's going to be a difficult thing to prove i don't think that's the route they would have to go well that's one route yeah. the other yeah. one would be common mistake yes and that's probably the one that you're thinking of yes. so they would have to have argued that uh, both parties were under the understanding that the recalculation would be done in the way in which argentina is now yeah. claiming 
and prior to the contract, that was also a shared understanding of uh, the lenders and something uh, passed between them objectively. So a, a stand back judge, as it were, can see that there is evidence of this common yeah. understanding. And yeah. that's going to be difficult too, isn't it? I don't think that's the biggest hurdle. I think the biggest hurdle would have to be to show that that whatever was on paper mm -hmm. was so far off that it had to be a mistake. Uh, you just have to show that it does not reflect that which had been agreed. Yes, that's you don't have to have this so off idea. It's just that it does not reflect what had been agreed. So the court would have to decide first, what the heck does this mean? That would be base one. And uh, Mr. Justice Pickin has effectively done that yes. in this case. Yeah. Uh, and so the next step would be, okay, for rectification. Now we're going to argue rectification. We would have to come up with evidence of documents and correspondence between the parties, which is showing very clearly, objectively, that the finding interpretation which Mr Justice Pickin has uh, achieved is that which the parties yeah. thought at the time. Yeah. That may be difficult on the correspondence yeah. to show that degree of uh, un unanimity, as it were, in terms of understanding. Quite. So, I, well, I think it failed both tests. In the test, the first stage of the test is it has to be clear that there was a mistake. On the face of the document. Uh, that's more oh, about Chartbrook, I think. Yeah. Uh, Chartbrook, this correcting interpretation or interpretive, well, correcting interpretation, I can't quite remember the phrase well, that he's used. It cannot be correcting interpretation, then, you know, Justice Speaker makes the point that you cannot rectify by interpretation. No. Fine. So. No, so in, it, they're different processes, I think, is all. All they're saying, interpretation or construction, is trying to work out what the heck this means. Yes, what yes. is the common what? understanding of the parties of this text? Well, yeah. objectively, yeah. stand back and look at this sophisticated document. Yeah. Okay, accept him looking at the background facts yeah. insofar yeah. as that's helpful. Um, what does this language mean? That's the interpretation stroke construction stage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, rectification, uh, sorry, uh, Chartbook chart principle yeah. is still part of interpretation or construction because it's the court saying, um, looking at the language of this, it, uh, it is clear that a mistake was made by the draftsman. Yeah. You know, the, the bracket in the wrong place, the syntax mm -hmm. being garbled. Mm -hmm. um, it is clear that a mistake was made Plus, in addition, they would have to be able to show that the correction is itself clear. Yeah. Yes. So there yeah. is no possibility of argument about yeah. what the nature yeah. of the correcting yeah. needs to be, because yeah. that would be, I don't know about a French court, but that would be a step too far for an English court because it's shading into uh, rewriting a, a bargain for parties, which English courts don't do. 
That's why I'm saying that the correction itself, what needs to be done, has to be absolutely clear because then the court can, an English court at least, can sort of put their hands up and say, this is not us making your bargain. This is simply us making your bargain clear from the language that you have chosen to use. And where it is not clear from the language that you've chosen to use, then we correct it for you, but we're not making it for you. So some people might think this is a semantic argument, but there is a difference between correcting and making. I forget what you've asked now. What is, was that a question? No, I, I asked a question. I asked a question and I, yes. So how long, how long did it take you to bring mistake into this? It seems, you know. <laughs> Touche, touche. Good, yes. We should explain, dear listener, that Dr. Tim has a particular interest in the law of mistake and Professor Sontier has a particular interest in good faith. I, of course, have no particular... Oh, here we go. Not at all, not at all. Um, Yes, I think that's absolutely We have wrung yes. it for all we yes. were, possibly. Yes. yes, and I am impressed by your notes. Um, it is definitely nice to be in the same room. I must admit, it really is. It's yeah. very nice. Uh, yes. I well, I hope, uh, well, I hope, listener, that um, you, you you've got... Well, yes. also, <laughs> I was just going to say that the listener maybe doesn't feel it was totally different, but has got something out of it because we were actually yes. physically within a couple of feet of one another and we've not ended up in fisticuffs yet (laughs) thank you very much for listening Um, if you do have any comments thoughts ideas or any cases you want us to discuss then do contact us on unpacking.contract.law at gmail.com and thank you of course to our sponsor Newcastle Law School that is it goodbye goodbye thank you very much goodbye